A week after BioNTech and Pfizer release very promising interim data for their COVID vaccine, Moderna this morning has unveiled its first interim phase three data that looks very good. Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Thanks for joining me, guys. In addition to digging into the Moderna data, today we'll discuss the key takeaways from a survey of Chinese biopharmas conducted by BioCentury and our partners, Bay Helix. We'll also dig into some comments by panelists at the BioCentury Bay Helix 7th China Healthcare Summit about what the Chinese biopharma landscape might look like in five years. But first, it's the talk of bio Twitter, mainstream press, you name it. Moderna's data is out today. What do the data mean? What are the likely timelines? And what are the read-throughs to other vaccines? Steve, you've been covering this since last night. I have. And this morning with a press call that featured an all-star cast, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, Stefan Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna, and some others. I think everybody's familiar with the top-line data that Moderna released based on their interim analysis. Their mRNA vaccine was 94.5% effective. Importantly, there were 11 severe cases of COVID, and they were all in the placebo arm. Tony Fauci said on the press call this morning, that both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine readouts far exceeded his expectations and that they bode very well for other vaccines that are based on viral vectors or soluble protein technologies that Operation Warp Speed is backing in the United States. So I think a really interesting question, a lot of people have said the window for testing other vaccines might be closing then as EUA approaches for these first two. What do you think about that, Steve? So they talked a little bit about the big issue of unblinding of the patients who are in the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine trials, basically said that they will have to be unblinded at some point. At the earliest it could come would be when the EUAs are issued, which I think is likely to be toward the end of December, but it could be delayed until the vaccines are widely available to the public. And that's likely to be sometime in the March or April timeframe. So those trials are going to be completed. The Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine trials will be completed as expected. The real question is, what impact is that going to have on other vaccine trials? Is it going to be possible to persuade people to enroll in trials of other vaccines when they know that that they're highly effective vaccines that have already been authorized? It's still an open question. My feeling is that any of the phase three trials that have already started or that are going to start very soon in the United States have a very good chance of being completed, but that it's going to be really problematic to do any vaccine trials after that. There was some discussion on the call this morning. Tony Fauci suggested some alternate designs that they might, for future vaccine trials, randomize participants to get either one or two doses of a two-dose vaccine, or that they might do non-inferiority trials. I think that non-inferiority trials are really not going to happen because they would have to be enormous, and that's not going to be feasible. The one-dose versus two-dose thing seems also very problematic to me. 
and one other avenue I guess they didn't discuss is whether or not companies who are a little further behind might just take their trials to a different country where there's not an EUA yet. I know some are, are focusing in on South America. That's, so that's I, definitely a possibility of getting foreign data. Yeah. So I think just to take a step back, one of the things I heard a lot last week is actually from the industry point of view, this is a huge collective sigh of relief. I'm not actually sure that the public really realized that industry wasn't even sure it could make a vaccine. There's never been one against coronavirus before. And so I think what this does is it actually now changes it a little bit more like what you started to think about, Steve, which is tactical, first of all, deployment, but also advantages that one vaccine might have after another. It seems very likely everybody agrees that if these vaccines work, the others will because it's the same science behind it. And it means that the virus is amenable to immunization against or to protection against, which remember hasn't been done for coronavirus before. So I think that what that means is that companies can now start to think in terms of, does it prevent transmission? Can they improve with one dose versus two? Can they go into subpopulations? The question about going to other countries, they can definitely do that to enroll, but in all cases, you need to be providing something in the next vaccine class that is not just efficacious for 90%. The other thing I want to say is talking with people, I had a podcast actually also with Mene Pangalos from AstraZeneca last week. Industry is not dialing back on this. Nobody really believes that once you get the vaccine, you then aren't going to need any of the other things. There's still going to be people who can't take the vaccine, some who won't take the vaccine. There's still a need for therapies. There's a sort of expectation that until this is really, I'm going to use your word, clobbered from one of your stories, Steve, until this is really clobbered, farmers do not want to take their foot off the gas on this. One, one other thing I want to bring up from today's data that was really important also is that Moderna's done stability testing that shows that their vaccine can be stored for 30 days in a regular refrigerator and for 60 days in a freezer at temperatures that every hospital and actually every house in um, the United States has. That's a huge advantage over the Pfizer vaccine that has to be stored at minus 80 degrees C. And I think it's going to be a differentiating factor. The other thing that's going to be a differentiating factor for all of the vaccines, I think, is going to be the adverse event profile. Right. So Moderna mm -hmm. um, presented data that suggested that none of the adverse events associated with their vaccine were really serious. They didn't put people in the hospital, but a large number of people had adverse events on the second vaccination that were really unpleasant. And I think that would keep somebody at home in bed for um, a day or two. And, and that actually speaks to the two sides of the tactical thing, because individuals don't care how it was shipped, right? That's the company's problem. But if you've got individuals who actually have a choice, you know, would you take Moderna's now if you're going to get a potentially bad reaction and be laid out for two days? So would you rather wait a couple of months for a vaccine that won't do that? You don't care how it's shipped. The companies and the government, whoever ends up distributing it, that's a big deal for them. So that's sort of what I meant about with now you're trying to get differentiation or advantages based on not efficacy, but all the other bits that go with it, like side effects, logistics. The, the other thing that's going to be huge, and I don't know whether it's going to be differentiated among the different vaccine candidates, is going to be duration of response. It's something we're not going to know for some time, but obviously if 
any of the vaccines can differentiate themselves favorably by providing a longer duration of response, that's going to be huge also. And we, we don't know from the business standpoint whether all of these vaccines are going to be a one-shot proposition like they are, for example, you know, with a smallpox vaccine, or are they going to be seasonal vaccines like influenza vaccines, or are they going to be more like the chickenpox and shingles vaccine where you, you get a, a vaccine at one point and then you need to get a booster some years later. And, and that's going to have enormous implications commercially and, and practically. I think these differentiation factors you're both pointing out will become more important over time. When I try and envision the early days of rollout, say March and April, when these first two start to become available, I don't know how much the differentiation will matter then, because I still think we're going to have a, a scarcity of just doses. You're right. People, right. And, and, and I think, call, you know, wherever you are, you're going to get the one that's available to you there, right? That's exactly right. That's what they said on the call this morning. Matt Hepburn from Operation Warp Speed, somebody asked him whether people are going to be able to choose between the two vaccines. And he said, that's very unlikely. I agree, Selena. And the companies themselves, I want to be very clear, the companies are not at least publicly talking in a competitive manner at all. They're really talking in an additive manner. Good, we'll get, you know, Pfizer's CEO tweeted congratulations this morning to Moderna. As I said, AstraZeneca was delighted actually with the news. I do think that the next efficacy shoot to drop though will be the bar has been set for these other modalities. It is still technically possible that adenovirus or other modalities don't hit the 90%. And this is actually more of a validation of an mRNA strategy. Steve, I think you've talked about the fact that there's more than just these two mRNA vaccines out there, actually. So there could be some change we've seen there. Would you rather take an mRNA one at 90%? Yes, if the other ones come in at 75 what are the expected benefits of these other modalities? For instance, say they're not as efficacious, what might they offer? The big thing is that J&J is testing a single dose vaccine. That would be a huge advantage. In the United States, it would be a big advantage in developing countries where it's difficult to get to people and it's difficult to track them and to remind them to come in for a second dose and so on. It would be an enormous advantage. I agree. I, I think that's about it. At the beginning of this or halfway through this coronavirus period, we would have said that the mRNA vaccines have never been in people before. And so safety might be a differentiator. But obviously, we're hoping for maximal safety on these ones and that there isn't a difference on that front. Steve, one question for you more on the political side. The Trump administration hasn't participated in some of the uh, global initiatives to guarantee a certain amount of doses of vaccines for developing countries. Do you expect a change from a Biden administration in terms of playing nice in the sandbox? Absolutely. I've been in touch with Two people who are on the COVID-19 task force, on Biden's COVID-19 task force, and they couldn't make an absolute commitment because nobody can until the transition has happened. They both said that they absolutely expect that the Biden administration will, well, one, they've said that they're going to rejoin the World Health Organization, and two, uh, that they're going to participate in the COVAX facility, and three, that they're going to make some vaccine doses available outside the United States earlier in the distribution, they're not going to follow through with the Trump administration's plan, which was basically to say that 
not one drop of vaccine leaves the United States until every single American who wants it gets it. And then practically speaking for these two vaccines, what are the next steps? Are they headed to an FDA advisory committee? And yeah, so, might that be? So the next steps is both of them are waiting to accrue the median of two months of safety data. What uh, Moderna has said is that by the time they have the two months of safety data, which they expect to come in the, to be in the coming weeks is the expression they use, they will also have hit the 151 events that they need to complete the trial. I think the same thing's likely to be the case for Pfizer. I would anticipate a joint advisory committee meeting to review both of these vaccines. It's possible that FDA will decide to have two separate meetings, but I, I can't imagine why they would do that. So I think that we're likely to see that in uh, December. And then I think we're likely to see an emergency use authorization decisions for both of them in December or at the very latest, early January. All right. Last word on this, Selena. Oh, I was just curious if the strength of these data are going to be enough to overcome the sort of vaccine hesitancy out there. What will the demand be like? I think we don't know that. I'm actually more worried at the beginning when I think you'll have people rushing, fighting to get the vaccine. There's a lot of people willing and anxious to take the vaccine who, who will suck up those first doses. I do imagine in this country and in other countries that huge education campaigns around it. I have heard one person talking about the current plans not really being well designed to go into the minority communities and places that also in particular needed, and that will need to be part of the strategy from the get-go. That's something that the Biden team is really well aware of, and they're talking about strategies, for example, going into African-American churches in the South United States and things like that. An interesting phenomenon, if you look back at the H1N1 vaccine, is that when it was in shortage, there was tremendous demand to get it. And then as soon as it was widely available, people were like, "Nah, maybe we don't need it. And it, it, they didn't actually use up all of the doses that they had manufactured. I think we're in a different situation now because COVID-19 is so much more deadly. Maybe the very high efficacy of this vaccine also will reduce some of the pressure for having a massive vaccination if these vaccines provide sterilizing immunity, which is to say that somebody who gets vaccinated then can no longer transmit the disease to someone else, then you would be able to achieve herd immunity with somewhat lower levels of immunization than you would need with a less effective vaccine. That would be wonderful. All right, thanks for your thoughts, guys. Uh, moving on, last week, BioCentury and Bay Helix wrapped up the live portion of our seventh annual China Healthcare Summit. It's the first time we've done the event virtually, which means there's still time to register and view the content, which is excellent. It includes McKinsey's annual biopharma report with exclusive data on the China market and where it is headed for investors. And it also includes an IP panel on the new China patent amendments and what they mean for both China biotechs and Western biopharmas doing business in China. Now, this panel gives you the rare chance to hear from the former top IP judge in Beijing. All sessions are available until December 11th, and you can register at 
biocenturychinasummit.com. Coming out of this, we ran a survey on the outlook for China biopharma and the biopharma ecosystem in the years ahead. One quote that resonated with me, especially as an editor at BioCentury, came from one of our panelists, Antoine Papiernik, who is managing partner at Sofanova Partners. He said, a year in Europe is like a month in China. We see this in every sector. Simone, uh, what were the key takeaways of the survey? Right. Well, well, thanks, Jeff. First of all, I should just say it was not coming out of it, but actually going into um, the conference. Ah, We did this survey ahead of time and then discussed it with some of the panelists. Actually, you know, what Antoine said resonated with the entire rest of the panel who reinforced that and is really shown by the responses in the biotechs who we asked to say what they think the China biopharma landscape will look like in five years time. And the bottom line is China is not waiting around for the West to get comfortable with the idea that China is going to be a big player in biopharma. Like they, they are aggressively moving ahead. These are in, in, incredibly motivated, energized innovators there. I think they are pretty optimistic. They feel like even though right now, China, until now, I should say, Chinese companies have been thought of as mostly doing me twos or biosimilars. If you look at what we've called the money magnets, and we did some analysis of this, and we call the money magnets companies that have raised more than $100 million in the last seven years, actually, since the, the thing began. So if you look at the top companies, they believe almost overwhelmingly, they believe that they will be working on first in class or at least fast followers in five years time, that's going to dominate the landscape. More than 50% of them think that innovative biologics will be bringing more revenues than biosimilars. About a third or just under 30% think it'll be equal. And, you know, only 20% think that biosimilars are going to still be ahead. My take home is really two parts of this. On the one hand, China has a lot of money in the China ecosystem and the biofarmers think they are overwhelmingly think that they are going to be able to fund their own growth. So they think that either China-led syndicates or China-only investors, 96% of the respondents thought that most of the VC funding was going to come from there. They're not waiting for the US VCs or the European VCs to get in the game. And 90% of them plan to be going to China VCs to get involved. They are, however, much more expecting to be dependent on the West for licensing deals. And these sort of fall into two strategies here, broadly speaking. On the one hand, they expect in-licensing mostly to come from the US, and they are looking to in-license late-stage assets so that they can kickstart their pipeline, bring in revenues, and then use that money to fund development of their own innovative pipeline. And then on an out-licensing basis, they are looking to go to the West. They are planning to prioritize worldwide rights because many of them just don't have the basis really to market, to commercialize worldwide. So there is still a sort of dependence on the West in that way. One thing other than Antoine's that I thought was really interesting was Christian Hogg of Chimed. He said eight years ago, they did a deal with AstraZeneca on one of their compounds, and that molecule is now in registrational trials. They decided to partner with them, but they wanted to take it forward themselves. He said, 
their employees, their investors, no one will put up with that kind of a timeline anymore. No one's going to go into a deal if they think it's going to take them eight years to get one of their top assets to registration. There's just a lot more emphasis on speed. Yeah, so I thought it was both ambitious and optimistic view from China Biotechs. Just one thing really quick from, from the panel that I did about the outlook in Washington. The consensus there was that U.S. policy toward China, toward inward investment from China into the United States and toward export controls to China is not likely to change soon in the, the Biden administration. And that does actually relate to IP reforms and regulatory reforms, even marketing reforms in China. A lot of these have been making a lot of headway. And there's still a feeling that they have some ways to go. Really, the emphasis on IP reforms and regulatory reforms was pretty evenly split on what was most important. But I think that there's certainly some way to go in terms of aligning expectations for IP and regulatory control between the West and China. All right, that's all we have time for this week. You'll find this story complete with all the data on our website, as well as Steve's story, which he is still building out with more intelligence on the vaccines. That one is in front of our paywall. All of our podcasts are available at our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll see you next week.